Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. Good to worship God together. We're going to study his word. So go ahead and open your Bible or turn on your phone and find uh, Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be studying. We're picking up right where we left off last week. We got a lot of passage here, so we got to get to work and, uh, and go after it. Uh, so Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11, Luke writes, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordered, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail, and now they're going to send us away secretly? 
Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them and escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. Amazing stories. When the gospel arrives in Philippi, here in Acts chapter 16, what we're seeing is no less than a turning point in world history. A turning point in world history. This this story, this moment, cracks the door open for what would lead eventually to the evangelization of the Western world. In other words, your salvation is downstream of the gospel planting a flag in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. You're a believer because the gospel crossed over the sea. They stood in Troas, Macedonian man vision says, come over here. They come over, gospel plants a flag, and 2,000 years later, we can hear the gospel. A radio program uh, used to be on NPR, and there was a pool of history scholars that would be on this program on a daily basis, and you, callers would call in and ask them questions, and they would have to think about and extrapolate if this happened differently in history, what other effects would, have that, would that have led to in history? So for example, someone called in and said, what if JFK's assassin missed? What would have happened? So now these scholars have to think about the implications and other things that were going on in the culture at the time, what that would have meant. What if, another question was, what if Washington hadn't crossed the Delaware? What if the South had won the war, the Civil War. A person called in though, notably, and asked this question. What if the Apostle Paul hadn't taken the gospel into Europe? And after hearing the question, there was this extended period of silence, after which one of the scholars said, oh my, this changes everything. (laughs) It is a turning point in world history, but, and yet, At an individual level, these three conversion stories right here in this passage are a confrontation with my unbelief, a confrontation with my unbelief about what God can do in the world through the proclamation of the gospel. You know, we sometimes think, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we think, um, this person that I know is too skeptical, This other person that I know is too religious. This other person that I know is too non-religious. And we've got all these reasons why this is an individual who is least likely to ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the way we think. This person can't come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. When that's our way of thinking and we drift toward that way of thinking, it's not the gospel message that needs adjustment. It's our small view of God. That's why at Acts 16 wants to pull up a chair and teach us a big theology, a, a vision of the God who gets things done in the world, who saves. This is, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who called the message of the cross the message of the gospel. He said, the message of the cross is the marvelous magnet. And he was, he was riffing on the fact that Jesus talked about, if I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. This message of the cross pulls people like a massive magnet to himself. And sometimes it's surprising people. These are really surprising people. Grace comes to surprising places. In Acts 16, 
what we see is human witness and divine sovereignty. People speak and God saves. It's not just one and it's not just the other. People are speaking and God is saving. So we see grace showing up in surprising places. First we meet Lydia. So Paul's evangelistic method normally began in the synagogue. It was a place where you could go and they would welcome an outside rabbi from out of town and they would give him the floor and let him speak on something. And so they would go to the synagogues and that's how they would start. It was kind of a public conversation, a gathering point. Well, there is no synagogue in Philippi. You only needed 10 God-fearing Jews to get yourself a synagogue anywhere in the Roman Empire. So they don't even have 10 God-fearing. And this is one of the three biggest cities. This is like New York. This is like LA. Athens, Philippi, right? These are huge cities, influential cities. And they don't have 10 God-fearing Jews. And so Paul, they walked outside the city. They expected that if there are any Jews in this town, they don't, they don't get a synagogue, but probably where they'll be is out on the outskirts of town praying. It was a frequent custom. He walks outside of town, there they are. A group of women, they're praying in a makeshift synagogue out there on the outskirts of Philippi. And Paul and his companions find this group of Gentile women and they start sharing the good news. And this is when we see the name Lydia in verse 14, how we meet her. So Luke tells us a little bit about who she is. She is ethnically Gentile, but religiously Jewish. She is a God-fearing Gentile. That means that she, she's outside the covenant. She's not related to Abraham, but she wants to be a practitioner of Jewish faith. She's convinced that the God of Israel is, is the right God, and she wants to go out and pray and, and seek him in all the ways she knows how. She is, Luke says, she's a seller of purple fabrics, which was the most valuable dye in the ancient world. So she's either in, in retail, she's a businesswoman, she's maybe a fabric designer, she, don't know, she's likely very wealthy. Most people who interpret this passage believe that she's wealthy, we'll see that at the end of the passage some of the ways that that manifests itself. So she's probably a wealthy businesswoman. She gathers, though, every Sabbath, regularly. So she's, she's not just successful, but she's also very, very religious. And what happens? So that's how we meet her. What happens? Her eyes are opened to Jesus. Verse 14, what wonderful words these are. The Lord <laughs> opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Every word there counts. Response counts. Initiative of God in making the response possible counts. The fact that Paul was saying something when God opened her heart, all of this matters. Every word matters. The term for what happens when God opens the heart to respond is regeneration. That's the $3 word, the theological $3 word, regeneration. It's God making the heart that is dead to him and unresponsive to him suddenly alive to him. As the Old Testament prophets would predict that there was coming a day in the age of the spirit where God would take away stony, unresponsive hearts and give fleshy, responsive hearts. He would do this amazing work. Jesus would talk to Nicodemus in John chapter three about being born again, about wind blowing through the trees and you see the effects on people's lives. It's regeneration. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter two. And he says, we were dead in our transgressions and sins and God made us alive. 
together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Notice, though, that God opens her heart to those words, four words, what Paul was saying. That's so important for us. It's not enough just to live the life. We have to share our hope. We have to verbally tell the gospel, gossip the good news. That's the call. We have to speak the word. Paul is speaking the word and God opens the heart. It's what God uses to open hearts. That's why Paul would say in Romans chapter one, I'm not ashamed of the, of, of the gospel of God. It's the power of salvation. It's what God does to pry open uh, unresponsive lives. What happens? Her eyes are open to Jesus. And the next point is res- she responds with eagerness and hospitality. So that eagerness word, she responds by believing, but also apparently she turns around to everybody in her household and witnesses to them. She tells her entire household, look, so just take all this in. She's, she's five minutes old in the faith. She's, she's five minutes old in the faith. Doesn't she know that you need a seminary degree before you can become a missionary? Apparently she didn't get the memo. She has not been informed that she's not ready to do some talking, to, do some, to share some hope that she has. She, she heard a story, it changed her life. She turns around, she goes home, she tells her whole household, and they believe. <laughs> That's the awesome thing, right? Convinced people, I've, I've heard this, I can't remember who, who said it. Convinced people, convince people. And she is utterly convinced Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. She goes home and convinced people, convinced people. When it says all her household believed, that all her household is, a, is an inclusive term. It means family members, the cooking staff, the pool boy, everybody who lives in or works in the house. Everyone came to faith in Jesus. Not only, so they all believe, and notice there's a, there's a connection between belief and baptism all over the book of Acts. They all believe, and they all get baptized. And what else do we see in Lydia's life? We see that the gospel opens hearts, but it also opens homes. That's not in your notes. You look down. It's not there. Sorry. <laughs> gospel opens hearts. Gospel opens homes. What does she say? She turns around. She's been... She believes she's been baptized. She says, come stay at my house. I got, a, I got a room for you and your four friends. All of you can come stay. There's plenty room in my home. You probably want to keep working this area in this massive city. You got good gospel work to do. Go tell the story. And every night you don't need to book a hotel room. You'll stay here. Let me ask you this question. Has the gospel converted your heart and your kitchen table? Has the gospel converted your soul and your wallet? She instantly starts leveraging her blessings for the kingdom, her home for the kingdom. It's, now it's a kingdom home. Five minutes ago it wasn't, now it is. Come stay at my house. It's just that you see the instantaneous generosity, compassion, broadness of soul. That, that's what's going on. Her heart's been changed. In meeting Lydia, we discover... This is in your notes. Grace finds people on the outskirts when all they know to do is pray. There are are people around us 
this past week, there are gonna be people around us this coming week who are already hungry for the truth. Trouble is, we don't know who they are. There again, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, if we knew who all the people who were hungry are, if it lets, he said, if everybody had a black stripe on their stomach that indicated they're hungry for God, what we would go around doing is pulling up people's shirts to see if the black stripe is there and then telling them the hope that we have. And he says, but we don't see the stripe. So we just openly tell the good news and God brings people to faith. It's often said that this vision that Paul had that led them to come over to Macedonia, Philippi is in Macedonia. The, the Macedonian vision is this Macedonian man that he gets a vision of a Macedonian man who is saying, come over here and help us. And it's often pointed out that the Macedonian man turned out to be a placeholder for what turned out to be Lydia. <laughs> She's hungry. She wants to hear. God knows that. And in God's providence, he's arranged everything. He's arranged the hunger. He has arranged where she is. He has arranged where the apostles are going we don't know who's hungry for the hope we have in Jesus until we start speaking. They speak, God works, she believes. That, that's how this thing has been going down for 2,000 years. Christians speak, God works, and people believe. The apostolic team, they stay that night at her home. They wake up the next day in Lydia's house. They head back into town. And this is where we meet the second character in our story. We meet the girl with a python spirit. So how do we meet her? As they're on their way, Luke says, indicates to us that they're followed by a certain slave girl who was possessed by a demon and a demonic spirit apparently gave her predictive powers. And so for a certain price, she would predict your future and this was exploited by her owners. They loved this dark gift that she had and they profited immensely from it. She is said to have, in the language in which Paul wrote this letter, or these words, she's said to have a pneuma pythona. Pneuma meaning the word for spirit, and pythona, right? And in areas where there's clearly some cultural background here, right? So let, let's think about it. In areas where Apollo uh, was worshipped, and this would be that area, Apollo was the god of reason. Apollo was the god of the arts. Apollo was the, gar the god of philosophy. Apollo also was associated with having the power to predict the future. And the mythology stated that Apollos got this power by coming into this very region. The god Apollo came into this very region and went, entered into a massive battle with a huge snake, a huge python. And he he conquered this snake and he took over its house. Uh, its home was on Mount Parnassus. Matter of fact, if you go to Mount Parnassus today, you can see the temple of Apollo where the Oracle of Delphi was there to predict the future for people who came in, right? So from that time on, after Apollo was said to conquer the snake, you would go to the temple of Apollo if you needed to know the future. If you weren't sure about the outcome of battle, if you weren't sure about the outcome of a business plan, you could go and you could talk to and hire the temple priestess. Pythia was her name. You would talk to Pythia and Pythia would tell you the future. Well, so Luke, don't miss the point. Luke doesn't believe in the mythology, but he does believe in evil spirits. 
And this poor slave girl has been overrun by evil spirits and she has a dark gift and she's making a fortune for her owners. And we're told, verse 17, that as they keep going into town day after day, she keeps following them. And she's crying out repeatedly, these men, you see those words, these men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the most high God. They seem to let that go on for day one and day two and day three. Eventually Paul was, Luke says, greatly annoyed. (laughs) And by the way, he's not annoyed at her. How do you know? Because when Paul shouts in her direction, he addresses the spirit. It says, turning to the spirit, Paul said, I command you to come out of her. She is powerless. She has been taken over. Paul is annoyed. He just sees the evidence day after day after day of what is going on in this young girl's life. And in another sense, you might ask the question, why was Paul so annoyed? The spirit was telling the truth. The Spirit is saying, these men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. That's what they call free publicity. I mean, who hates free publicity? Well, and this is a good point for us all to bear in mind. Uh, Both then and now, not all publicity is good publicity. Sometimes Christianity gets photobombed. Sometimes Christianity gets photobombed by people or belief systems that are only interested to borrow or appropriate or absorb Christianity as a means to an end that is contrary to Christianity. And the fancy word for that is syncretism. It's, we already believe this stuff and let's add Jesus to the mix. And now we can kind of double our power and double our influence. Paul shuts this spirit up because this is not the endorsement Paul desired. This endorsement stood to potentially misrepresent and adversely affect the clarity of the gospel. That's why he's annoyed. Not all publicity is good publicity. And Paul commands the spirit to come out and what happens next? Two things. Her life is freed by Jesus and she leaves the occult behind. So even though her conversion, her repentance and belief, her what must I do to be saved, right? It's not explicitly acknowledged. It's located in between two conversion stories and this would have been intentional. Luke would be clearly suggesting and and wanting readers to get the point. What's the point? Salvation belongs to God. Ed Clowney, the great, great theologian at the end of the 20th century professor at Westminster Theological Seminary famously said, if I had to find one sentence in the entire Bible that explains all the sentences in the Bible, it's a sentence found in the book of Jonah, and it is this, salvation belongs to God. That one sentence encapsulates the whole story of God and his purpose in history. Salvation belongs to God. Grace finds people on the outskirts when all they know to do is pray. And next, grace finds people bound in sin with no power to overcome it. You know what's another subtle evidence that she's come to faith in Jesus is is the effect on her owners. 
she, she is no longer working for them. Their, their profit dries up. She's not showing up for work, no longer a means of their corrupt financial profit. Bear this in mind. Think about this at the principal level. If the gospel only affects her spiritual beliefs but not who she works for and not what powers she answers to, that's not true gospel fruit. So when she becomes a believer, she can't show up tomorrow as Python girl. That, that's not who she is anymore. She doesn't have a Numa Pythona anymore. That's not her identity. She's no longer what she was. When Jews became believers all over the New Testament, their long-standing hatred of Gentiles has to go. They're expected to leave that behind. Same thing for Gentiles. Long-standing hatred of Jews has to go. That has to be left behind. You don't bring that with you. Christianity doesn't absorb that junk. It, that, that stuff has to fall off. That's the husk of the old life. That's why Paul would frequently say in places like Colossians, put off the old man and put on the new. You got new clothes to wear. On the other hand, come at it from the other side. If Python girl starts kind of praying to Jesus but still worships Apollo, what happens? Rome yawns and looks the other way. But when gospel change affects, starts to affect the offering plate at the temple of Apollo, at the oracle of Delphi, when the oracle priesthood has fewer appointments and has to get a side gig, right? Now there's gonna be a problem. And that's exactly what happens. What happens next is persecution and imprisonment. She leaves the industry, which means there goes the profit for her owners. Somebody's gotta pay. We've lost all this money. Guess who's gonna pay? Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas get dragged into the marketplace. They charge them with advocating illegal customs, disrupting order. All these charges are bogus. They've done nothing of the kind. False charges. They, they're not given a trial. They're summarily beaten and arrested. But nonetheless, even though there's no ground for this, no basis for this, the crowd is whipped up into a frenzy and everybody joins in. If you've ever heard the, the axiom, the statement, lies often run all the way around the world before the truth has a chance to put its shoes on. That's kind of what's going on in Acts chapter 16. Before you know it, Paul and Silas are being stripped, beaten, flogged, and arrested, which should sound like familiar verbs if you read the story of their master whom they've been called to follow. You read Luke's gospel. This is Luke's account of Acts. You read Luke's gospel. You see Jesus go through these things. You read Acts and you see his followers going through these things. And it's at this point where something amazing happens. Luke basically plugs headphones into verse 25 and you put them on and you get to hear what's going on in prison. And what do you hear happening? You hear singing. <laughs> Hymns of praise is what happens next. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Literally a captive audience in this particular moment, right? Everybody else might be trying to sleep. 
Paul and Silas backs flayed open. They're not going to be getting any sleep tonight. Might as well sing. Might as well pray. And so they're singing these hymns. It's not exactly a Shane and Shane concert, right? That don't, go, don't quite go all the way down the road there, right? They've got chains and stocks. Uh, they're beaten and falsely accused. And you hear their voices bouncing off the walls of the prison and they're singing the praises of God. Understand, Christian friend, one of the most powerful witnesses in the world is when people see a Christian who sings in the midst of affliction. Maybe you've seen it before. It is so compelling to watch suffering Christians worship. Worship anyway. Follow him anyway. Praise him anyway. I love what John Stott says about this. He says, it's wonderful that in such pain with lacerated backs and aching limbs, not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder the prisoners were listening to them. What happens next? A miraculous earthquake. Miraculous earthquake, that's what happens in verse 26. We, at this point, is when we meet the jailer. And how do we meet the jailer? Well, this earthquake goes on in verse 26. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake. The foundations of the jail were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up, so there's verse 27, and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. So he sees the prison doors are open. He assumed everybody had escaped. And since the jailer knew I'm the one who's going to be held responsible for this, he intends to take his life. That, that is not kind of coming to us out of nowhere. If we just read earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, when, when there was an earthquake and Peter escaped, Herod ordered all the guards to be executed. So he knew my life is over. I had one job. Keep all these doors closed and all those chains on. And all the doors are opened and all the chains are off. And it's over for me. It's curtains for me. I got no other way to live. But before he can take his life, we hear Paul's voice in verse 28 saying, don't do it. <laughs> Paul sees what he's about to do. He sees the sword. He's postured there. And he says in verse 28, we're all still here, which is maybe the bigger miracle. Doors are open and everybody's staying inside. Which maybe suggests, who knows, maybe suggests that Paul has kind of taken command of the situation. It's called for order in the midst of this moment. Paul says, we're still here. Obviously, Luke doesn't give us the, tail, the details of what was clearly a longer conversation that goes on. In verse 30, we see the jailer escorting Paul and Silas out, and that's when we hear him say, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So what salvation is the jailer asking about? Is he asking, what must I do to not lose my life, to not be executed for what just happened in the jail? And I think the answer is no, because everybody's still in the jail. No, and, and Paul said, nobody's leaving. None of us are leaving. He's not talking about job security. He's not talking about his life. He just turned the lights on, literally, a second ago, and everybody's still there. So what happens? Here's what happens. His life is spared and the good news is proclaimed. 
And in that moment, when he realizes his life is spared, he asks, what must I do to be saved? He's talking about some other salvation. What, how would he even know to ask them about rescue? How would he know to ask them about salvation? I think there are a couple of likely possibilities here. Number one, they've been singing all night about it. <laughs> right, they've been singing, they're not in there singing at midnight, you know, Bon Jovi's greatest hits. They're, they're singing, you know, Found by Daniel Rindstrom, uh, not literally, but they're singing the ancient version of that. Philippians 2, the, the Christ hymn, that's probably many believe was included as a hymn that was already had gained traction in the church. Maybe they're singing Philippians 2 about how Jesus came and he lowered himself and he came in the likeness of men being found in human form. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Maybe they're singing the Christ hymn. Maybe they're singing Colossians 1. Maybe they're singing 1 Timothy 6. These are all places where you have statements of faith and possibly hymns in the early church. So maybe he's been hearing all night them singing about salvation in Jesus Christ hope in Jesus Christ, forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. And he says, tell me more. Second possibility is if he read the file on these inmates, he saw the report that this whole incident began when Python Girl announced, quote, these men are proclaiming a way of salvation in verse 17. And so when the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? He's saying, I know your message is about rescue, so talk to me. Talk to me about rescue. Talk to me about, tell me how your God saves. Tell me how your God rescues. And you can't improve on the answer that they give in verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it goes on to say, Paul and Silas, quote, spoke the word of the Lord. That's shorthand for the good news of Jesus Christ. Shorthand for the gospel. They spoke the word of the gospel that centers on Jesus. Don't you wish you could have heard what Paul and Silas said to him. And yet by the same token, we got a pretty good guess. If we just keep reading the book of Acts, like next chapter, <laughs> we got a pretty good guess as to the kind of things that they would have said. For example, you are a religious man and we're religious as well. And around this place and in this region, Zeus is honored and Apollo is honored and the emperor is honored. You're religious, we are too. But there's a difference between your gods and the God we worship. Your gods need to be served by human hands. Your, your gods ask you to build a temple for them. You had to build the temple. You have to bring them food or they starve, right? You have to bring them sacrifices. They're needing and they wait for you to come scratch that part of the back that they can't reach, right? We worship a God who made the world. He's in charge of it all. He doesn't just have a jurisdiction over one town or another town. He made the world. His temple is not made with human hands. He doesn't need food. He supplies food. Here's the story of God and his creation. My God, they would have said, our God is God overall, and he doesn't require us to make the sacrifice either. He offered himself as the sacrifice so that we sinners might be reconciled to him, brought near to him, adopted into his family, made righteous and right before him forever. Love what Bruce Milne in his commentary on Acts, he says this, the Christian message has been expounded through these chapters 
Yet in this dramatic moment amid the ruins of the Roman jail in Philippi, it can be stated in a single sentence of five words. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Such is the glory of the gospel and the glory of the gospel's God. And so we come to the end of this next episode in Acts 16 and we realize something, something ironic. We realize the miraculous earthquake wasn't there to free the prisoners, but the jailer. In, in God's twist ending, God's left-handed way of working, the earthquake was there to set him free. Like Lydia, this jailer responds with eagerness and hospitality. Isn't it amazing how a heart that's regenerate immediately starts to have some of the various impulses that the gospel puts inside of us right there in the early moments, right? When, when do you think was the last time this jailer offered a meal to his charges? <laughs> Come to my house and eat at my table. I'm guessing never. <laughs> this is probably a first. He, not only that, before he brings them home and prepares a meal, he says, you got some nasty wounds there. Some of my best friends put them on you. Sorry about that. Can I clean them? And he, wash, he walks them over to a basin and he begins to wash and put balm on their wounds. He's washing their wounds. He's, he's baptized along with his believing household in verse 34. And then we see him preparing a meal for them and rejoicing. <laughs> Probably unbeknownst to him, his Lord, Jesus, would be known as the balm of Gilead as one who would heal people's wounds, who would wash people's feet, and who would prepare a table. This guy's only been a Christian for five minutes and we can already see the resemblance. Here's the point. Grace finds people who are hanging by a thread, giving them hope that the story isn't over. And what happens next? I'll be quick here. The next day, the authorities say, basically, we rough them up, we should probably let them go. And Paul says, shockingly, no way. Uh, we're not leaving. We tried to tell you this yesterday, but you were too busy beating us half to death and ignoring due process to hear. We're Roman citizens. It's illegal to do this to Roman citizens. You know that as well as we do. And yet you beat us with rods, which is against the law. Roman citizens couldn't be beaten with rods under any circumstances. And we didn't even do anything, Paul says. So he says, how about an apology? I mean, that, that's crazy talk, right? Suddenly, the purpose of these, these events becomes clear. Now, the magistrates are publicly seen admitting by their actions, we have no charge against the leaders of this movement. The God, in other words, the gospel is publicly vindicated by the very people who were just hounding it and persecuting it. In other words, if... Paul and Silas were secretly released and the word of the sh on the street was that they were actually lawbreakers, that would have been a hindrance to the advance of the gospel. So Paul says, no, that's not the way we're gonna do this. Grace comes in this passage to surprising places, the outskirts of town, Python girl in the shadow of Mount Parnassus, a jailer's kitchen table and full circle right back to Lydia's house. The first church gathering is held, and it's the oddest church plant in history. <laughs> you know, at that time, Jewish men were taught to pray 
every day, thank you, Lord, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And guess who comes to church on opening Sunday as the church meets in Lydia's house? Three Gentiles, two women, and a slave. Lydia, a wealthy Gentile businesswoman, a slave formerly known as Python Girl, and a jailer who brought his inmates over for a meal the same night he almost ended it all. Who knows where grace might show up in and through you this week? The point is, are you looking for it? Are you eager? Are you ready? Will we be bold? Let's use our words and let's pray for God to do that thing he alone can do. Let's pray for God to open hearts as we use our words.